Welcome back, bike fans. Happy Friday, everyone. Thank you for making this journey with us this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. On today's show, I continue my bold predictions as Karnak the Great picking today's stage winner once again. Stage six route, results, details, we give it all. Chris Froome crash watch reaches day three and everyone is on edge. We also learned that Wout Van Aert is not going to win the Tour de France this year. And he's not even going to win the Dauphiné this year. News from the world of cycling, things that could make you go, hmm, some winners and losers. It's a packed show. Hang on. Chris Froome, Crash Watch, day three. We've got some, um, some, some updates on that. A um, little bit more revealed as to, look, Chris, in case you've been hiding out, check out some of our past shows. We go into detail. Chris Froome. Winner of the Tour de France, winner of multiple Vuelta a Espanas, and possibly one additional, well, multiple ones now, um, possibly since Kobo has been disqualified from his 2011 victory. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as well. Chris Froome on recon uh, of the stage four individual time trial crashed pretty horrendously into a wall. Um, multiple people were traumatized by it. He was left on the side of the road for two hours. They had to do some extra work on him. He's gone into intensive care. Just a little bit of update on his injuries. Um, indicated his his pelvis was not injured, but his um, his hip was. So they had to work on his... Basically, he's royally effed up, okay? Um, I saw a video yesterday from ITV, and it showed him riding no hands on his time trial bike just moments before this whole thing happened. Wout's next to him. He's trying to put on a jacket. It's kind of windy. And you can hear Wout actually say, hey, um, Wout Poles, that is, um, hey, Chris, you don't have to take risks. Chris is like, ah, it's no big deal. Uh, the video did not show the wreck. Uh, but look, you're on those time trial bikes. I, I couldn't imagine riding no handed on them <laughs> at all. That's not how he wrecked. So I'm just it was it was kind of eerie to see that with the commentary and then moments later to know that he um, had crashed pretty bad. Um, there was an interesting article here in Cycling News, uh, a little bit of hyperbolic statement by his uh, his orthopedic surgeon, but this title is, Chris Froome could come back stronger within six weeks, surgeon says. Stronger? Orthopedic surgeon reveals Chris Froome lost two liters of blood after the crash. That's pretty horrendous. One of the specialist uh, surgeons who operated on Chris Froome has revealed the team Ineos rider lost close to two liters of blood due to the complex nature of his injuries, but has suggested, quote, he, he could need around six months to come back stronger than ever. Stronger than ever. I don't know what <laughs> what they're putting into him. Uh, is six million dollar man, the bionic man. This also reminds me of um, President Trump's uh, medical advice or uh, results from his doctor, where he's a little bit hyperbolic on. Uh, the orthopedic surgeon Giorgio Gresta spoke to La Gazzetta dello Sport. The Italian doctor has worked in France in the last twenty years and revealed. Uh, chose to stay late at Saint-Étienne Hospital when it was confirmed Froome was being transported to a helicopter. Froome suffered serious injuries after crashing. We know that. He was conscious and reactive when my colleague Remy Philippot, who operated on uh, Froome's fractured uh, femur, and I explained what he would have to do. Um, he was optimistic. Uh, let's get to the part where he says he's going to be stronger than ever. The intensive care, that was a precautionary measure due to the length of the surgery and considering that the patient has lost a lot of blood, more or less two liters. 
He's not facing any specific risk, and it's important he stays calm and relaxed. He'll be transferred to normal care unit as soon as possible. His recovery time depends on his desire to fight back, but he seems very motivated. He could just need six months to be back stronger than before. I don't know. He was pretty strong before. He's uh, won multiple tours. He's had on chance to win uh, his fifth Tour de France. He was, what, second in last year's tour? Stronger than ever. Seems a bit much. But, um, hey, look, we're, we're glad he's recovering. Um, the intensive care sounds like more precautionary thing. Losing the two liters of blood, though, was pretty much, uh, that might have been pretty horrific scene. It would be interesting to hear some details about the roadside and how bad that actually was. If he's losing that much blood on the scene, or maybe that was due to the surgery, I'm not sure which one. Uh, that's that's pretty intense. Okay, let's get right to stage six of the Dauphiné. Look, we got stage six today, Friday, stage seven tomorrow, uh, Saturday, and then finishing on Sunday. So you have three stages left. Stage six is done, but we're going to recap it. Let's talk about it. Was there any corrections we need to make from yesterday's stage? Probably. Maybe you can send those in. Um, I, I, when I re-listen to it, I hear myself saying things like, I'll say one. Um, I mentioned I was making a correction of Contador over Cantana. And then I said Tour de France when I met Vuelta. I mean, I just keep correcting the corrections. It happens. So send us your corrections, uh, any of your comments as well. The race today uh, from saint Villavos to saint michel de Maron. Uh, 228 kilometers. The start, uh, St. Volbus, is a commune in the Anne department in eastern France. How about the finish? The St. Michel de Chimarine. Uh, it's a small town in France. I couldn't find much about it. Look, go visit those places you want. They look very quaint and pretty exciting if you want to just go um, chill out there. I think the population is under uh, 1,000. Um, so take your family there. You're going you're gonna to increase the population by a bit. Uh, the route today, uh, just south of Geneva, heads east into the bigger mountains and the Italian-Swiss borders. Um, coming into, cat, into the town, as we talked about, hits a Cat 2 climb and then a 7-kilometer finish. Uh, so the predictions on the day. Uh, this was, as I said, it had eight categorized climbs, a 2, a 4, a 4, a 4, a 3, a 2, a 3, a 2. And those climbs start around the 80-kilometer point, and it's it's up and down all day. A lot of climbing, a uh, long day in the saddle. I said uh, over the top of the climb, it looks like you know there's a nibbly type of thing, Mahoric. Uh, I also said Julian Alaphilippe. Uh, well, I didn't expect him to get in the break, but that's exactly what happened today. Let's look at uh, the GC stage results uh, after stage five. Adam Yates was in the lead, Dylan Toynes, uh, TJ Van Garderen down to third. I'm going to just mention fifth place, Wout Van Aert at 20 seconds. Um, and he's a he's a surprise for today. Well, not a surprise, but he's one to keep look at today. I was interested to see how he would do with all the climbing. Since, hey, this, this cross guy, maybe, maybe cross helps you go uphill as well. Okay, so on the day, the break went early like 12 kilometers into the 228-kilometer race. You had Alaphilippe attacking. You had Alessandro Dumarche uh, from the CCC team coming. Julian Alaphilippe with Decorna Quickstep. And then you had um, Gregor Molberger of the Bora Hansgrohe team. Uh, look, no one in the trio was more than 16. I think Alaphilippe was the closest on GC, around 16 minutes. So the field was more than content to let them go. They went way early. Uh, they get up towards around oh, at least 12 minutes at one point heading into the final climb. Uh, it was pretty windy out there today, so I think it just helped calm the field down a little bit. And uh, with that said, like I said, they go into the final climb uh, at about a 12-minute lead. It was very windy, and 
that that climb, you'd expect maybe something was going to happen on the day. What did Tom Dumoulin say before? He said, today I will take it easy as possible. And yesterday I felt some problems with the knee. So I will take it easy today and hopefully work on my shape again on the weekend. Look, he's he's concerned about the tour. I know he's kind of waffling back and forth. I can tell the way he's riding in this that he's testing himself out. Um, but obviously you don't want to injure yourself and put yourself in a, in a, in a hole and further back, you know, just to keep trying to push on to maybe be ready for the tour. And then what you end up doing is having a nagging knee injury. Maybe it, maybe it ruins your career. Uh, or maybe you, um, you have surgery and you come back stronger than ever before. Okay. So up the final climb, the GC field remained calm. The sprinters and those mid range roilers start to get spit out the back. Wout Van Aert actually sits up. Um, team Ineos, now they're working for Wout Poles. They go to the front. They have, they kind of have a calming effect on the field, I think, because they uh, instigate the pace. No one decides to take off. There's a lot of wind. Um, the guys are way up the road, so the stage wind isn't even at, at, at issue. And you didn't see any of the GC riders doing much of anything on the climb. They pretty much just went over. They did cut the, the, the pace, uh, the, the deficit down from 12 minutes to around six at the finish. So up ahead on the climb, you have these three. Julian Alaphilippe, we know this is tailor-made for him. Molberger is a decent climber as well. And those two kind of start attacking each other in the last two kilometers. They get rid of Demarche. He ends up trying to come back. He ends up does getting back, calling himself back to them around one kilometer to the summit. And at that point, he decides, I'm just going to go for it. And he attacks. I think that's, it was, in hindsight, those two guys up front can really, Molberger and Julian Alaphilippe can really, they have the, a pop. And he could probably beat them in a sprint, but up that climb, he had already been distanced. I don't know why he was doing that because all he needs to do is hang on, and then he's got the downhill and a, a good shot of winning. He just got second a few days ago, I think, to Dylan Toynes was when he was in that break. Either way, um, he ends up trying to attack. They counter and dump him uh, just a few hundred meters from the top, and he's not seen again. Come down the side, Alaphilippe goes off the, the road at one point <laughs> into the grass, but cleanly makes it out. I mean, that's kind of a lucky little thing on the side of the road, and he just flies right through the grass, continues his his momentum down. And coming into the last few hundred meters, you've got uh, Molberger decides to lead out Alaphilippe. I don't know if it's just, you know, look, sometimes it's difficult to get these guys off your wheel or however they want to do it. Maybe they're still worried about Dimarche coming in. So he, Molberger takes to the front. Now, Julian Alaphilippe yesterday got third, narrowly getting third in a sprint finish, pack finish, over Sam, uh, was just beating him with Sam Bennett come across the line and Wout Van Aert. So you know he has a good kick. So leading him out was not a great idea. However, when they hit the front and they decided to, to sprint head-to-head around 200 meters to go, it was a headwind. It was obvious that uh, Julian Alaphilippe was in the wrong gear. If you just look at the cadence by the two, I think Mulberger did the best he could by, by having a gear that he could come over the top on. Alaphilippe with the wind when he came out on the front was having a hard time turning it over, but he is the stronger sprinter. And in the end he did a bike throw. He gets him by, you know, almost a little more, maybe two rims. So it was pretty close. Alaphilippe gets his 10th victory of the season. The field closes in six minutes, uh, with Wout Werner not being there getting jettisoned out. The only really the guy in the top 20, I think top 10, at least, uh, that had uh, a bad day uh, as far as results go. Um, so we found out that he's not the, the climber or he's focusing on, you know, look, someday he may, he may come over the top and, 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 uh, change his, his writing skills set a little bit. Uh, but for now he's still in the points Jersey. He dropped way out on the young rider Jersey. 
uh, and obviously on GC as well. So results for the day. Um, let's take a look at, at how we had for the results. On the day, we had uh, Julian Alaphilippe, Gregor Mulberger, Dimarchi, Alessandro Dimarchi of the CCC team. Watt Poles brings in the field uh, six minutes and 10 seconds back. Gorke Zagura, Jakob Fuglesang, Fuglesang actually wrecked. We'll talk a little bit about that. Jack Haig, Adam Yates, etc. Um, he had three Americans up there. TJ Van Garderen at 21st. We had Palace, Nielsen Palace of Jumbo and Sepp Kuss, 26th and 27th. They came in with that front group, so good for them. Uh, Joy Roskop just misses out on that. She comes in at seven minutes back, uh, 36th place. So, hey, um, pretty cool about that. As far as the GC goes, we have Adam Yates in first, Dylan Toynes in second. Nothing changed except for Wout. Everybody in fifth place on down in the top 20 pretty much moved up. Uh, someone else in the top 20 must have moved down as well. Biggest loser on the day, uh, Pils, uh, Niels Pollitt. And Damien Hausen both dropped out, uh, losing eight in 13 places. Um, Walt Venner goes down to 34th place. He lost 29 places on the day, uh, which, you know, you, you were expecting to see. Um, Nilsson Palace moves up 13 places. Julian Alaphilippe moves up 25 places on the day. Eh, it's still not. I mean, like he's, he's prepping for the tour. And that's, um, I don't know what his plans are. You know, we talked to Mike Sayers here a few weeks ago. And he thinks, seems to think that Julian Alaphilippe will be one to compete in the Tour de France uh, coming up at some point. I mean, right now, he's probably your most prolific French winner. Who else is there that's winning to the tune of 10 wins a season on a French team? Not even a sprinter. So congrats to him. And um, obviously a real talented rider. Biggest losers. Uh, so the winners on the day, I'm picking Julian Alaphilippe along with American Sepp Kuss and Nielsen Palace for both finishing in the front group. Uh, it wasn't the super hard day, but, you know, it was only like 20, 30 riders that ended up in that front climbing group. And uh, I don't think they probably had to suffer too much to get up and over that. But it's good to see them doing their work, staying up front. There was a lot of yellow that came across the line. Now there's there's Mitchison Scott, there's Jumbo Visma. Uh, they're both kind of some yellow. But when they came across the line, you had a bunch of people all mixed up in there. So as I mentioned, Yates is still in the lead. And... Uh, he's, he's got a good shot at getting this overall. I think Dylan Toynes is probably going to be taken out in the next day, probably tomorrow. Um, probably Van Garderen, who's in third place. I tour California was such an, another eye-opening disappointment with him. I don't know though, if that maybe the, the, the climbs that we see in France that are a little less steep and a little more long and grinding, um, are more suited to him, what you would see like South Lake Tahoe type of thing rather than going up Mount Baldy that we had in California. But I mean, he's done well before, obviously getting fifth in the tour overall, winning stages of the Tour de Suisse. Uh, I mean, TJ, I don't know. Um, otherwise, you're going to see Fuglesang. I mean, if he's still riding the way he did early season, you're going to see him coming to the fore. Quintana, Kreuzwick, Pino. I think Pino uh, is one that you're you're probably going to be looking for to see him and Woods. I'm, those are the two I'm most interested to see of how they develop out throughout this uh, next two days. So what do we got coming up? Stages seven and eight. Saturday's route has four climbs: a cat one, 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 and then HC. Um, and then Saturday's has seven category climbs: three, two, three, one, three, one, three. But the most interesting part about both of those is they go tomorrow 133 kilometers. 
And then Sundays is 113 kilometers. So uh, really short stage, what, 60 some miles there, 70 uh, for Saturday, Sunday. And with that many climbs, it's going to be, you know, a lot of sparks are going to be hitting for the fireworks there. Uh, sun, tomorrow, though, it ends on an HC climb. So I think you're going to see a big shakeout go, obviously, tomorrow. And then a little more, maybe some consolation uh, on Sunday. But, you know, someone that's in 20 seconds of uh, the overall, depending on who that is, they can they can take a long range solo, you know, or a break, try to try to really isolate uh, a team. Someone didn't have teammates there and um, see what they can do. That's that famous race that they did in uh, the Vuelta a few years ago when Contador took Froome by surprise. 60 some kilometer race drills it at the front to begin with and Froome and his whole team get you know taken by surprise Contador ends up winning the tour okay some cycling news uh in and around Remco Evenpoel gets his first world tour win at the tour of Belgium yesterday the quick step the corner rider um, I mean he's been hyped up he's about 19 years old he won the time trial and road race uh, world championships for the juniors last year he decided to skip the U23 ranks went straight to uh, quick step. Uh, he ended up, I think, did he win? He might've, well, this is his first world tour win. I think he was top three in the time trial and the San tour San Juan early season, which showed he, he's obviously a strong rider. Uh, yesterday he gets in a break with, uh, Victor Campanarts, the world time trial, uh, our record holder and dumps him with six kilometers to go, comes in solo. Uh, he had a pretty excited sprint or, or finish there, uh, post up. And uh, congratulations to him. And I think we're going to see a bunch more of him in the future. As long as he doesn't get burnt out and, you know, being so young, it'll be interesting. To, you know, look, uh, most I've seen out of him was San Juan and then, what, last week with the Hammer Series. I saw he was you know, pretty active and in a break with uh, Greg Van Avermaet. Did you say Hammer Series, Tyler? I said Hammer Series. I, I didn't. That's still going on. And um, anybody watching the Hammer Series out there, I think it's a good concept I just think it needs to be tweaked a little bit. And the fact that it's streamed online for free on Facebook by GCN or YouTube is pretty cool. Um, I just haven't even been taken advantage of it. It's somewhat difficult to get into that one for some reason. Uh, this is Rally H UHC Cycling um, announces their Tour de Swiss team. Uh, they have Ryan Anderson, Rob Britton, Robin Carpenter, Colin Joyce, Gavin Mannion, Brandon McNulty, and Sven Tuft. Um Brendan McNulty didn't have a very good tour of California. I think he was a little bit sick. He he won a race coming into the tour of, of California. It would be interesting to see how this team does out there with some of these riders and having the ability to, you know, they do pretty good like tour of California and they've, they've done a little bit more uh, Eurocentric racing. And, you know, the first glance at the start list of the Tour de Suisse, which starts Sunday, I believe, it looks like it might be a little easier competition wise than the Dauphiné. Um, I mean, yeah. So, you, I mean, you've got, Aru, this is just some that I was able to pick out. Aru, Bernal, Thomas, Hugh Carthy, who did the Giro, Polzavivo, who did the Giro, Luis Leon Sanchez of Astana. I, otherwise, you don't see a bunch of big hitters out there. Uh, Movie Star has uh, Winter Anaconda. Uh, there's someone else that they have there as well, but none of their big, other big riders. Hugh Carthy, it'd be interesting to see you know, if he's recovered enough from the Giro to, to take this on very well. Uh, otherwise, you know, you may, well, Bernal and Thomas are obviously two big ones, but they're on the same team. So I don't know that might neutralize one. So it's, it's a little different than seeing two guys attacking off of each other. Uh, we'll see how that goes. 
good luck to Rally UHC out there at the Tour de Suisse. Look, registration for the U.S. Cycling Road Amateur Championships is underway. Uh, it starts, kicks off June 20th, so coming up here this next week with the individual time trial. It's in Maryland, so all those amateurs uh, that are looking for, you know, Cat 1 Open and U23s, juniors, I think they have paracycling out there this year. Those are all, um, you know, you need to register for that. And then Masters, is, well, then the pros are coming up the next week. Uh, then you've got um, Masters out in August. So national championships coming up pretty quick. Uh, I found this story to be somewhat interesting. I saw from Cycling Today, cyclists break laws, traffic laws to stay safe, study finds. New study published in the Journal of Transport and Land Use details when, how, and why cyclists decide to break traffic laws. While many studies have sought to understand the reasons motorists break the law, fewer have focused on cyclists. Wesley E. Marshall, an engineer and sociologist from the University of Colorado, and Daniel Pietkowski, an urban planning professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, wanted to better understand the rule-breaking cyclists and the factors associated with their unlawful behaviors. Uh, first thing I'd note is University of Colorado and the University of Nebraska collaborating on an issue. As uh, someone who went to CU Boulder, um, Nebraska was very much hated. And you know what the N on their helmets stand for? Knowledge. All right, everyone breaks the law, but things like going over the speed limit in a car are socially acceptable. We don't see that as criminal, says Dr. Wesley Marshall. When cyclists break the law, they are behaving like this image of a bike messenger's reckless behavior or are behaving rationally like a jailbreaker. So what's the most significant result is that 71% of the time when cyclists break traffic rules, they do so for reasons of personal safety. This compares to the most prevalent response among pedestrians and drivers who cite saving time as a reason they disregard traffic laws. Look, I'm out there uh, riding a lot with you know cars. It's you're always a little bit worried about getting hit. I anytime I'm approaching vehicles at stops, I'm doing what I can to make sure I'm obeying the law because uh, there's a, there's a seamlessness to it. <clears throat> and it's it makes it smoother if you you know whoever's in line first they go. A lot of times I've seen lately you know maybe it's where I live that there's a lot of cyclists out there. Cars are trying to wave me through stop signs and stoplights uh, when they're the, have the right of way. And I've been hit by cars when I've actually done that. So it's almost frustrating. And I don't know they're being nice, but I'm just like, look, if I'm going to assume you're obeying the law and you're following things correctly, um, so it's this is kind of an interesting study and. Um, Typically, you'd think that demographics would be important, but they were, and they were. But where they lived and rode mattered the most, he says. What's more, Marshall, who recently moved to Sydney, Australia for a six-month sabbatical to study traffic safety there, suspects that place can change a rider's habits. I've been riding a lot here, and I've been behaving like a Sydney rider, he observes. The social norms of place matter. Exactly. It's kind of what I was saying about living out in Folsom, Colorado, uh, California. Same with Boulder. Uh, you know, if you're going to be downtown or a place that uh, isn't used to cyclists, I grew up in the Northwest and you'd be out in all these wheat fields. There's no traffic at all. There's a combine going from one field to the next. It holds up traffic to doing like 10 miles an hour. No one's has a problem. You get one cyclist on the side of the road and people <laughs> freak the F out, throwing stuff at you, honking, trying to run you off the road. I'm like, but this farmer you're fine with and you've been behind him for like 20 minutes. So, you know, it's all it's all perspective and, and you know, personal <clears throat> to each person. But um, stay safe out there, everybody. 
viewer listener mailbag. We got some, uh, I posted a bunch of videos out, uh, took some highlight videos. Look, take a look at the one uh, about the Chris Froome crash. That I actually posted the video of our friend uh, Scott Hooper, who's on a group ride. Uh, we went over the top of Sierra College. I'm on Jay Newton's wheel. He's got the camera trying to hang on and I point out a rock. Scott hits the rock and flips out into traffic. Luckily, there was no traffic coming our direction. And right, I mean, he almost goes to the center line as the car's coming the other direction. And I mean, it could have been, it could have been fatal. Uh, been, you know, very glad that he was safe. You know, there was no, no, no severe injuries at all. Uh, it's a pretty horrific looking crash. Take a look at it if you want. I posted that up on the, on our full YouTube channel, uh, the full episode, and then a highlight with the Chris Froome crash. Uh, also did a highlight of our Kellen William, Will, uh, Kellen Winslow, which, um, Sean Bagley commented on there about that. He goes, I've written, cause I mentioned Mark Paul Gossler as well. He says, I've, I've raced with Mark Paul Gossler a few times in SoCal. He was fast. He's a good sprinter. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate the input. Uh, I heard an interview with him a few years ago about the tour and about cycling. He was a real big fan. Probably still is. I just think he started actually working more in Hollywood the last few years. So, and he was pumping up a little bit. So he, I don't think he's been riding what he was. As a matter of fact, the last five years or so, last time I checked, I think it was when a few last year I was looking at some of his stats. He hadn't raced for quite a while. Uh, Lord Wario uh, mentioned um, this one on the the one Jose Cobo. He said Cobo is a cheat. Yeah, that's right. That's he is a cheat. That's what the UCI just said. Thanks for the the comment. Uh, Kurt Mills mentioned about Froome and Cobo. He said an all natural. Froome could have beat a doped Kobo had it not been for the completely unlikable Wigo, who always served to just hold poor Chris down. That's right. It makes you wonder what what Bradley, Wig- sorry, Sir Bradley Wiggins um, thinks about it, or is going through his mind right now that Chris just got handed the uh, the Vuelta victory. It comes across to me that those two have a little bit of animosity still with them. How about some things that make you go hmm? Okay, well, I saw this come across my feed yesterday. Reggie Miller debuts a jersey with Castelli. Uh, They're donating portions of it to charity. Uh, How does an old has-been basketball player get a sponsorship deal that probably is better than most cyclists? Uh, You don't see you don't see Phil Guyman with this kind of thing. Phil's Phil's hawking. Well, so this was for a charity, and and they team Castelli says. Uh, okay, why is this relevant? Look, the NBA Finals just happened. Toronto Raptors just won in six games. Kurt just sent me a message this morning. It's a video of him saying um, that the Raptors are going to win in six. So he says he predicted this. Now, I suspect that video was made <laughs> right before he sent it to me. So tonight's game one of the NBA Finals, and uh, I'm going to go with the Raptors in six. But needless to say... Uh, he says he predicted it, and so if he wants to be my uh, Miss Cleo to my Karnak the Great, that's perfectly fine. Uh, you know, it ever makes you wonder, Miss Cleo, she was indicted on federal fraud charges. Shouldn't she have seen that coming? Uh, okay, Castelli says, we have teamed up again with Reggie Miller to support the Dropping Dimes Foundation, which was created to help ABA players who have fallen on hard times. All profits from the sale of the unique Bombay products will be matched by Reggie Miller and donated to the Dropping Dimes Foundation. Reggie Miller has created this annual fundraiser to merge his love of biking, okay, love of cycling is what you should have said there, with his love of basketball. This is how you, this is how you get uh, people 
incidentally signing up to the Between Two Wheels podcast when they want to sign up to the motorcycle one, the the confusion with biking and cycling, I think, when they call him bikers. He's a biker. Simply put, we aim to give back to deserving American Basketball Association players. And look, the ABA was the 1960s, 1970s, uh, you know, emerged with the NBA in 1976. I just thought, you know, we'd have a little deal here. As part of the merger agreement, the NBA agreed to accept four of the remaining six ABA teams, the Denver Nuggets, Indiana Pacers, New York Nets, San Antonio Spurs. The two remaining ABA teams, the Kentucky Colonels, and the Spirit of St. Louis folded with their players entering the dispersal draft. This is all due to the um, Oscar Robinson um, Robertson v. National Basketball Association when they blocked the merger in '76. So there were some issues there. Um, yeah, did you know that uh, uh, Kentucky had a team called the Kentucky Colonels, and they who knew? You know, one of the biggest stars coming out of there, Dr. J. Julia Serving. Um, anyway, that's enough on the basketball stuff. What's up? Coming on the calendar, we have the Tour of Swiss coming up this week, uh, the Ovo Energy Women's Tour, the Belus uh, Belgium Tour. As I said, Remco Evenpoel just won a stage here yesterday. NCNCA, there's nothing coming up on the calendar this weekend. Thanks, Red Kite. Brisbane Crit is next weekend. we got the Amateur Nationals, Road Pro Time Trial, and Road Nationals, along with the Paralympic or the Paracycling ones as well. Uh, anyway, Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. This has been episode 128. I don't think we're going to do a play-by-play daily podcast for the Tour de Suisse. This is kind of a warm-up to see how much, uh, how efficient I could do uh, these uh, for the Tour de France because I would like to pop out some early, you know, every morning do uh, a few little highlights on how the tour is going. Uh, Give some some a breakdown. Maybe we'll uh, have some people join in some live chats as well. Anyway, check out the show on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, Overcast.fm. Check us out on our YouTube channel, Between Two Wheels Podcast. Also on our Facebook page, Between Two Wheels. And until next time, take care.